Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 12 and go all the way through chapter 24, verse 21. And you can find it beginning on page 932 in the Pew Bibles. I know that Easter is not for another month, but this morning we are going to have an Easter sermon. Maybe not your traditional Easter sermon, but an Easter sermon nonetheless. You see, if you've just joined with us or maybe you haven't been with us for a while, we have slowly been working our way through the book of Acts, and we've come now towards the end of the book of Acts where, where Paul has been arrested for his faith. He's now on trial and has to give a defense for the faith that he has in Jesus Christ. And every time Paul has an opportunity to speak, do you know what he says to them? He says, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead, that I am on trial before you today. And so, according to Paul, the reason why he has faced persecution time and time again, the central issue for why he was in prison and the core tenet of the defense of his faith is the hope of the resurrection. And so it is with us. You see, just like in Paul's lifetime, people today, by nature, are very religious. In fact, of the, only about a billion of the seven billion people in the world would claim to be atheist, agnostic, or non-religious. And so that means that six-sevenths of the world's population is religious, and I would argue that, that the other seventh is as well. But of all of those religions, the one core tenet that sets Christianity apart from all other religions and non-religions in the world is the hope of the resurrection. Even among those who are religious, people may worship for all sorts of reasons. Maybe they worship to maintain their cultural heritage and their tradition, the way we see the Sadducees did in Paul's time. Or or maybe they worship to try to save themselves through their religious observance of God's law, the way that the Pharisees did of Paul's time. Or, Or perhaps they worship because they are spiritual and they want to appease the gods like so many of the pagan Gentiles of Paul's time did. And since Jesus may be one way to him, spiritual people may worship Jesus. But of all these people who worship, we come back to this, do they worship by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What implications does the historic resurrection of Christ from the dead have for their lives, for their doctrine? Still others may push their finger into your chest and they demand that you give a defense of certain things. Maybe some things like like creation over evolution or why evil exists in the world. They may want to corner you on ethical implications of things like sexuality and marriage. Or, Or maybe they ask you, how can eternal condemnation in hell be fair? Or how can we be so certain that Jesus is the only way to God? But time and time and time and time again, The defense given throughout the New Testament, and especially in the book of Acts, comes back to this. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then it changes the way we think about everything. Absolutely everything. 
Acts is full of speeches. And in virtually every evangelistic sermon and every single trial and defense that is made for the faith, the central issue, the climax of the argument ends in the hope of the resurrection. And we're going to see that yet again this morning from our passage, Acts 23, verse 12 through 24, verse 21. This is a really long passage that that faithfully records a plot to kill Paul, his deliverance to the Roman governor Felix, and the defense that he makes against deceptive Jewish accusations to this Gentile governor. But what we're going to see this morning from our passage is that despite intense opposition, God providentially protects and maintains innocence to proclaim true religion through faith in the resurrection. Despite intense opposition, God providentially protects and maintains innocence to proclaim true religion through faith in the resurrection. Now, I know that that's a mouthful, but it allows me to deal with the two events that are going on in this storyline. And so what we're going to do is just break that statement up into two sections. And I want to deal as much as I can with the last part. And And since this is a longer passage, we're going to handle it a little bit differently than we normally do. What I'll do this time is I'll read a little bit, and then I'll talk about it, read a little bit, and then talk about it more until we get down to the heart of the matter, which is true religion through faith in the resurrection. And so first, despite intense opposition, God providentially protects and maintains innocence. Now, we've been going through the book of Acts for a year and a half now. And this should come as no surprise to us at all. We have seen intense opposition arise time and time again. And with that opposition, we have also seen God providentially protect and maintain the innocence of his people despite all of the accusations that they throw at them. Well, the second half of chapter 23 is no different. We have more of what we've already seen, but Because I am an expositor, I can't just gloss over it. I I thought about it for like two seconds, and then I said, no, I can't do it. And so we're going to try to deal with it as quickly as we can. But at this point, Paul has returned to Jerusalem. He knows that imprisonment and afflictions await him. Uh, he, He had been worshiping in the temple faithfully, and some Jews from Asia formed a riot and tried to lynch him, not once, but twice, And yet, he was almost flogged by a Roman tribune until he made it known that he was a Roman citizen, but the tribune tried to figure out why the Jews were accusing him. And so when Paul gives his defense right there as he's standing before them, he says in 23 verse 6, it is because of the hope and the resurrection of the dead that he was on trial. Sanhedrin hears this, they break out into an uproar, they try to rip Paul to pieces, and so the tribune has to rescue Paul yet a third time, and just so, these three encounters, even right here since Paul has been to Jerusalem, there has been intense opposition, providential protection, and a maintaining of his innocence. And where we left off last time in verse 11... Christ appeared to Paul while he was in his cell, came near to him, and he said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
And so when we come to our text this morning, the tribune is holding Paul in protective custody, finding no fault in him, and yet the Jews want him dead. Okay? And it's about to get even more intense. You're like, if you think it can't possibly get worse, it does, right? Now, we've heard of different diets, right? Paleo diet, the Whole40, you know, Weight Watchers or whatever. How's this for a crazy diet? Read verses 12 through 15 with me. All right? It says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul, right? This is the murder diet right here. Uh, it says, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy, They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, this goes beyond the sudden anger of a mob, an explosive, out-of-control uprising that just forms suddenly. This is premeditated assassination at work. We can see the intensity of their hatred towards Paul and towards the gospel. And we can also see the inconsistency of their attempts to obey God's law, right? They made vows. They actually thought they were doing God a favor. And so in their mind, they presumed that Paul had broken the law, and therefore they were at liberty to break God's law in order to kill an uncondemned man. And that even says something to us. I mean, don't don't expect people who are filled with animosity towards the gospel to be consistent because consistency is often the first thing to go. But in God's providence, Paul's nephew of all people overheard this plot. And so verses 16 through 22, it says, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell you. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have been informed me of these things." And so here's this young nephew, he's probably in his teens, providentially overhears this plot. And and he goes to Paul, and because Paul's still a free man in protective custody, you know, he's able to hear him, receive uh, visitors. He, He tells the centurion, the centurion takes the young man before the tribune, and the young man takes courage to stand against the religious leaders of his own people to tell him truthfully of all that he had heard. Now, obviously, there's a word there to take courage to trust God and and to tell the truth and to stand up for what is right, no matter how young you are. But once again, this is evidence of God's providential protection so that Paul could testify to Christ in Rome. I mean, how could this be? And yet, we keep going. 
Verse 23 says, Then the tribune called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. I mean, God's providence extends even over the Roman cohort. Because 470 soldiers are given to escort Paul, setting out at about 9 p.m. to travel the 60 miles to Caesarea so that he could stand safely before the Roman governor Felix. Now, if this sounds excessive to you, uh, we have to keep in mind that, that the tribune didn't really know how great the opposition was. He knew that just at least 40 men had taken this vow, but it could be greater. And if there's one thing that the Romans will not tolerate, it's insurrection, right? They're going to leave no doubt, leave no question about it. And so, you know, in good show of Roman force here, 470 soldiers paraded Paul out of town and took him as far as Antipatris. And then on the next day, the 400 foot soldiers returned to Jerusalem while the 70 horsemen rode the rest of the way with Paul, delivering him to Caesarea. Now, when you think about that, nobody is crazy enough to go against that, no matter how hungry you are, right? And so yet again, God providentially protects. And with that group that he sends out with Paul, Verse 25, the tribune wrote a letter to this effect. Well, how do we know this is what the letter's like? Well, I mean, I mean, Paul's nephew could have been there when he wrote it. Uh, it could have been read aloud once, maybe even multiple times during Paul's trial. It could have even come up in Paul's many conversations with Felix over the following years. But the idea here is that it went sort of like this. It says, Claudius Lysias, that's the tribune's name, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued them, him having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they accused him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. And so good old Claudius here is painting himself in the best possible light. He's like, most excellent Felix, I want you to know that I have been all over this from the beginning, right? I have handled this so well. I saw that something was going on suspicious. And so I arrived on the scene just in time to protect our fellow Roman citizen. And when I found that this was the case, I sought to figure out what was going on. And, and uh, you know, and when it became clear that, that there was nothing wrong with him, I sent him to you. And, and notice that he doesn't mention anything about the fact that he almost got Paul lynched two other times. He didn't mention anything about the fact that, that Paul asked to address the crowd that was riding against him, and he lets them, right? I mean, who does that? He doesn't mention anything about the fact that he had to almost flog Paul before he finally found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, and he certainly left out that whole conversation that he had with Paul about his own citizenship, how he bought it with a bribe. You know, we're not going to talk about that at all, you know. And so this is a bit of a rosy picture here, but what ought to stand out to us in this letter is verse 29. 
I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged him with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. I'm just a peace officer here. I'm not a judge like you, but I found him innocent. And what we have here is a statement much like a former Roman magistrate, the prefect Pilate, made towards Jesus. That I find no guilt in him deserving death. See, we're to understand Paul is just right in line with with what we see in Christ. And and even more than that, you do realize why this statement of innocence is so important, don't you? Who is Luke writing to? Almost excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, a former or a, a Roman official who's a recent convert to Christ, and he's writing Luke and Acts to assure him that despite all of the uprisings surrounding the way of Christ, there was no guilt in them. There's nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. The issue is with those who hate the gospel, not with those who follow Christ. Right? This is part of the ongoing apologetic of Acts. Christians are not troublemakers. They're not rabble-rousers. They're not rebels. They're not trying to stir things up and make trouble for everybody else. They're not trying to overthrow any government. And yet those who make themselves enemies of the gospel respond violently and unjustly to the truth that they proclaim because that's what the gospel does. The gospel reveals the wicked hearts of man, reveals the true nature of mankind. And so in verse 31... So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, which is about halfway to Caesarea. And then on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, perhaps out loud, he asked what province Paul was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia... He said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So once again, we see Luke, careful historian, faithfully recording real events of how despite intense opposition, God providentially protects and maintains the innocence of his people as they strive to live before God in all good conscience throughout their days. Here's why this matters. These are not just stories. Stories about how Sir Lancelot spent his days frolicking in the clouds of cuckoo land or discussing moralisms with talking vegetables in Bumbleburg. These are real people in real places experiencing real events as God really works within real history among real governmental authorities to guide and to protect for His glory and for the good of His people. Friends, God is still doing the same thing today. He's still working. He is still acting. He is still protecting. He is still maintaining innocence so that we can take the courage to bear witness to the hope of the resurrection. 
We can trust that God will protect and will provide. That, that we, as we strive to live before God in all good conscience, that he will maintain our innocence. And even if our enemies prevail, we have no fear because we live in the hope of the resurrection. And death has no sting. All it does is usher us into our heavenly, eternal reward when at last we shall see the resurrected Christ face to face in glory for all eternity. And that confidence that despite intense opposition, God providentially protects and maintains innocence gives us boldness, second, to proclaim true religion through faith in the resurrection. So Paul's being held now in protective custody in Caesarea, awaiting his trial before the Roman governor Felix when we come to chapter 24, verse 1. And it says, after five days. Now, I hear this, and I I immediately think about that murder diet that those guys were on, and I'm just kind of wondering how hungry they are about this time, you know? And uh, I also wonder what took Ananias so long to make it to Caesarea, you know? And so, uh, you know, was he just kind of like getting back at him a little bit? You know, just like, well, you guys really messed that one up, so I'm just going to take my time. And uh, you guys just enjoy that diet. I I don't really know. But it says... Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and spokesmen. Right, so he's got a cohort with him, an entourage, and one Tertullus, a lawyer. Okay, when, this is like the scene from Return of the Jedi, you know, when the emperor Darth Vader come aboard the Death Star. You know, you dun, 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 you know, and you've got the poor young you know, Jedi Paul in his, in his handcuffs, and he's just like, you know, I'm not afraid of you. You won't convert me to the dark side, Father. You know, and so whatever. Uh, now that I've totally got you off track, you know, it, it says that uh, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Now, like a good lawyer, Tertullus is laying it on thick, right? The reality is Felix was very harsh with the Jews, and most of the Jews hated him, right? And yet... We see Tertullus waxing eloquent, right? Gratiating himself. We love you, Felix. You're like the bestest governor in the history of all governors ever. You know, you just, we love your rule. You're so amazing. We love everything about you. We love the rule. We love the hair. We love the toga. Did you lose weight? Because you look great. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, (laughs) one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And so you see what, what Tertullus is doing here. Right? Not only is he gratiating himself to, to Felix, but he's, he's putting it on thick here in terms of what Paul is. I mean, Romans don't like plagues. Romans don't like riots. Romans don't like ringleaders of sects. And Romans don't really care for profaning the temples unless they themselves do it. And so this wily lawyer, Tertullus, presents three charges against Paul. He says, first of all, he's riotous. This man's a plague. 
Two, he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, Tertullus can't bring himself to call them Christians or to say that that Paul is a leader of the way, as Paul calls it, because he refuses to accept that Jesus is the Christ and that Christianity is the one way to God. And let's face it, nothing good ever comes from Nazareth, right? It's backwoods, country bumpkins. And number three, he says that Paul tried to profane the temple. These are the three charges that are brought against Paul, right? And so verse 7, look at verse 7. Anybody find it? Find find verse 7? Can't find it, right? It's not there, all right? Verse 7 is not there because the earliest manuscripts didn't have this later edition. But don't fret. If you really want to know what it says, look at the footnotes in your Bible. It'll be there, okay? You can know what it says. In fact, let's just go ahead and read that says, we would have judged him according to our law, but the chief captain Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come before you. And so we see there that whether it's there or not doesn't really change anything, right? It's just a bit of data. Now, here's why I bring this up. This is an argument for the humility, integrity, and truthfulness of the Christian faith. Because we actually welcome scrutiny of our Bible in order to ensure its reliability, right? We're constantly doing work to make sure that what we have is as close to the, the, the original documents as possible. We, we strive for accuracy, and when, when we recognize there's variants there, we'll, we'll address those. We put them in the footnotes so that you can still read them and know what they are and realize, you know what, this doesn't change anything. It doesn't change theology. It doesn't change the data really much at all, right? It's just this is a later edition that found its way into some manuscripts uh, to include this little bit of data, but, but with manuscripts, older is better. And since the oldest manuscripts don't have it, we put it in our footnotes. You can still enjoy it. You can still read it. You can still kind of take it for what it is. But, but guys, we don't have anything to fear with the word that we've been given, right? Uh, and, and want you to see that and, and to trust in it. But getting back to the text here, Tertullus rests, in, rests his, his case there in verse 8. It says, by examining him yourself, you will also be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. Jews also joined in the charge as numerous false witnesses, affirming that these things were so. And so in verse 10, Felix then gives Paul the nod. And after a brief acknowledgement of the governor, Paul says, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul then replies to each of those three charges in turn. Remember, they accused him of being a rioting plague. But Paul responds in verses 11 through 13, You can verify that it has not been more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem and Uh, to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. So I'm not causing riots. They said that he was a ringleader of the dangerous sect called the Nazarenes, but Paul responds in verses 14 and 15, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, 
believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust. And so I'm just a faithful Jew here. Number three, they accused him of profaning the temple, but Paul replies to this charge in verse 16, so I always take great pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, all right, he hadn't even been in Jerusalem for for years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. So I'm not profaning the temple. And then he wisely goes one step further. He turns it back on them. They have all had these supposed witnesses that are accusing him of this, but they were not the ones that were there to verify because they didn't see a thing. In fact, verse 18, but some of the Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. And the reality is they don't have a thing. Paul is completely innocent in these matters. Now, friends, in terms of Paul's defense, he could have stopped right there. Could have just ended. They they don't have any actual witnesses uh, other than these false ones who weren't even there. And in fact, those guys are looking pretty bad right about now. Paul hasn't started any riots. He's This is not a political matter at all, but a spiritual one. And and let's face it, the Roman government is not going to step in and judge a disputed Jewish religious issue that that the council themselves can't even agree upon. Just like Pilate didn't want to judge Jesus based upon a Jewish matter, or Galileo, the proconsul of Achaia. Remember we talked about him back in Acts 18. He said, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews... I would have reason to accept your complaint, but since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves, but I refuse to be a judge of these things, and he drove them from the tribunal. Claudius Lysias could find no guilt in Paul, and neither would Felix. And so Paul's defense could have rested right there. Could have ended, right? And in terms of religion, Paul could go his own way, Right, He could continue to proclaim this way. The Jews, they could go back to their Judaism. Felix, you know, he could go back to his syncretistic practices of mixing various religious elements together to form his own mosaic of spirituality. And they could have been all good, all fine. But in verse 21, Paul identifies the real reason for his trial. They could find absolutely no wrongdoing in Paul save this one thing. And he's the one that brings it up. He says, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Friends, you've got to ask yourself, where on earth did that come from? I mean, the Jews didn't bring it up. Not once, not twice, not three times, never. They never brought it up. Felix, the tribunal, they they could care less about this. And so the, the... So why would Paul say that this is the real reason why he was on trial? It's not the first time he said it. Well, you might say, well, it was a shrewd tactic. 
right? I mean, it clarifies that the Jews were seeking to condemn Paul based upon a disputed Jewish theological issue that they couldn't even agree upon, right? Because the Sadducees said there was no resurrection. Pharisees and, and most Jews believed there would be a final resurrection. Felix, I'm fairly sure, could care less. And so it's a shrewd tactic, right, to, to kind of throw them all off and recognize this is not a political matter at all. It's just a simple religious disagreement and let's let bygones be bygones. But but I think that there's another reason. It's because Paul is wanting to direct them to the gospel. And the resurrection is at the heart of every single issue, every single hang-up, every single stumbling block in the way of Christ. And, and not just for the Jews, but for Felix and for us as well. Paul turns his defense into a confession of faith and the hope of the resurrection and the guarantee of ours as well. Go back up at, and look at verses 14 and following to see his defense yet again. And look at it in light of the resurrection, right? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then this way that Paul follows is not a sect, it's not one religion among many. It's not one of many ways to God. If Jesus rose from the dead, which no other religion proclaims, then Christianity is the only way. It's the only truth and the only means of eternal life. Or it's absolutely the opposite. It is not the way. It's not the truth. And it's not the life. You see, if Jesus rose from the grave, then his immortal life is the guarantee that through our faith in him, we too will have eternal life and is the only means through which we can be reconciled to God to live with him in glory. It proves that he's not some condemned Nazarene moral teacher, but that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and the only hope of our salvation. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he's not the then he is the only way to worship the God of our fathers in spirit and in truth. Everything else is false and futile. If Jesus rose from the dead, according to everything that has been laid down by the law and written in the prophets, then to believe God's word, we must hold to the resurrection. I wish I had time to unpack this further. But the Old Testament gives us lots of clues, lots of evidence for the resurrection. Just even uh, allusions in Old Testament themes like redemption, restoration, giving of life, healing, offspring from barrenness, rescue from death, the promise of a forever king and a forever kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, all of these give pointers to the hope of the resurrection. It's foreshadowed in the Old Testament with Elijah and Elisha when the two were able to be used by God to resuscitate two different sons from the dead. Job speaks of the resurrection very early in Job 19, verses 25 through 27, when he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, and my heart faints within me. The Psalms speak repeatedly of the resurrection. 
For example, Psalm 16 refers to God not abandoning His Holy One to corruption. The prophets, Isaiah 26 verse 19, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Ezekiel speaks of the resurrection of the valley of dry bones. And Daniel 12 verse 2 is indisputable. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there is no reason to hope in God. Because if death is the end, then why would you hope in him? Why would you waste the few days that you have giving up? Why wouldn't you just eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow you die? But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then there will be a resurrection both of the just and the unjust to stand in judgment before God. Any attempt to stand simply on your tradition or on your spirituality, or on your religious merit, apart from faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ alone for sin, then you will be declared to unjust to spend eternity in shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are declared just are those who have been covered by the righteousness of Christ through faith in Him alone. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning. It's the first fruits. He's the firstborn from the dead. There's more still to come. And his resurrection is the fulfillment. It's the foundation. It's the guarantee that all will rise, the just and unjust, to stand before the judgment seat of God. And if Jesus has been raised, then everything has changed. Everything comes down to that. Even on issues that people demand that we give our defense for. If Jesus rose from the dead, is it so hard to believe then that God created and sustains all that there is? If Jesus rose from the grave, then the problem of evil will be overcome because good will triumph and justice will prevail. Sin, evil, and death will be dealt with perfectly, and our good and wise and powerful God offers us incomprehensible, undeserved, and abundant grace and mercy towards condemned sinners to adopt them, holy and beloved, body and soul, to be his children for all eternity." If Jesus rose from the grave, then you need more than spirituality. You need more than religious observance. You need more than your own spin on the Christian faith. You need to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and follow him. If Jesus rose from the grave, then you need more than self-help self-improvement, self-realization. You need to be born again through a living hope that comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus rose from the grave, then this life is not all there is. And then everything we strive day in and day out to live for has its end, has its fulfillment in Jesus. See, the resurrection of the dead, it changes the present. 
It changes this day. It changes every day. It changes what we live for. It changes the way we think about everything that exists in the world. All of the pleasures that might be enjoyed, what are they in light of eternal resurrection glory? Or you think about sex. What is sex in light of the resurrection? Right? Marriage. What is marriage in light of the resurrection? What is your job in light of the resurrection? What is your entertainment? And, and all of those things that you try to put so much value in in light of the resurrection. It changes it all. All momentary pleasures pale in light of eternal resurrection glory. Friends, we don't merely believe in the abstract concept that a man walked out of a tomb almost 2,000 years ago. We live in the hope of the resurrection. Do you live in the hope of the resurrection? It is the single most important question that you can answer today and every day so that you don't fall into mechanical religious observance, not by tradition, not by law-keeping, not by spirituality. Do you live in the hope of the resurrection? Is it what you're longing for? Is it what you are waiting on? Is it what you are trusting in? Is it what you are living and standing for? Because friends, I have to tell you, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that we are on trial to this day. But despite intense opposition, we know that God providentially protects and maintains innocence so that we might proclaim this true religion through faith in his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would be those who live in hope. Not not hope in ourselves, not hope in our traditions, not hope in our good deeds, not hope in our spiritual experiences, but our hope would be centered in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that that hope would change us. It would change the way we think about our feelings, what we want to do or don't want to do. It would change the way we think about living under authorities. It would change the way we think about loving and serving others. It would change the way we think about family, about the blessings that you give, about the hardships that we endure, about the persecution that we may face. God, give us this hope. Lord, help us to not be just consumed by the trappings of religion and miss the point. That our hope rests firm in Christ. God, give us new hearts. Give us eyes to see so that we might live for the glory of our risen Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.